Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is back. And so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Here's a long clip shot. Broken out by Kent. He tries to get it out. What a play, Nurse, to keep it alive. Neal to Nurse, the shot. He fired it wide. Hawks win. Hawks win. The Chicago Blackhawks have won a series for the first time since the Stanley Cup Sports Chicago. That was Pat Foley, Hall of Fame broadcaster, calling the dying seconds of the dying play-in round. The Blackhawks beat the Oilers three games to one. They went up to Edmonton, played on, well, it used to be really good ice, but uh, Edmonton ice in September is not that good, although it was good for the Blackhawks. They, uh, they found a way to, to beat Connor McJesus, Leon Dreisaitl, who might be the MVP, and that was about all the Oilers had. And the Hawks had the veteran core, some young kids stepping up. And Corey Crawford looking like Corey Crawford for the last two periods. And that was enough. And it was part of a wild, wild Friday in the NHL. Welcome in, welcome back. I'm Steve Rosenblum. Over there is Tom Thayer. He's the one waving his hand. Wave your hand, Tom. That's it. That's it. Good job. We're going to the... Alpamani Ford Hotline, Alpamani Ford in Melrose Park. Welcome in. Co-host with Jay Zawoski of the Madhouse Podcast, NBC5 Sports. He is James Naveau. And James, you you ran a update us on the poll you ran on Twitter. Does it make me a dumb hockey fan that I'm pumped the Blackhawks have made the playoffs instead of having a 12.5% chance of landing the number one pick? And Alex Lafreniere, who is supposed to be the next Connor McJesus. How's that pulled Well, going? I mean, the, the, <laughs> well, I had to ask the question after last season when the Blackhawks locked into the number three overall pick in the draft. I just wanted to make sure that Blackhawks fans were happy, that I should be happy, I suppose. And as it turns out, about 85% of people said, no, I am not a dumb hockey fan, and that I am absolutely right to be excited that the Blackhawks are back in the uh, postseason officially now, not just the qualifying round or whatever uh, uh, wording the NHL wants to use. But apparently I am uh, I'm smart to be happy that they're uh, advancing to the next round to play either Colorado or Vegas. Hey, James, uh, so last night, first period, 14-44, it's tied 1-1. One one. 
What did you think from that moment on? Did you think this was going to be a 6-5 type of game or as tight as it was? Well, I mean, I think just based on what we had seen previously in the series, I fully expected it to devolve into a defense optional complete and total shootout. And that's obviously not what ended up happening. And a large share of the credit does have to be given to Corey Crawford just based on how well he played last night. I felt like the first two games in the series, especially, you could tell he was really rusty. There was a lot. Uh, He was just trying to kind of catch up to the game, whether it was uh, related to recovering from the coronavirus or just the extremely long layoff and the very short preparation time that he had. Whatever it was, Crawford didn't look like himself in those first two games. And then you started to see him kind of turn the corner in game three. He started to look a lot better, a lot more like his old self. And then last night I felt like was vintage Corey Crawford moving around the crease very effectively, very quickly, played with a lot of confidence. And that's the kind of uh, performance that you're going to need from a guy like Corey Crawford when you're facing an offense like Edmonton's. I thought that his performance kind of turned the tide in that game and really turned it into a little bit more of a chess match probably than the other three games in the series tended to be. Talking with James Naveau, co-host with Jay Zawoski of The Score on the Madhouse podcast. It's a terrific, knowledgeable listen for Hawks fans, and we're, we're talking the Blackhawks move into the Stanley Cup playoffs for the first time since 2017. So one of the things that going in to this this play-in series was I looked at Jeremy Colleton and largely unfit to be an NHL coach. He had not proven anything to me other than he looks pretty good in a suit and he, <laughs> he is relatively unflappable, which is fine, but we're used to crotch grabbing coaches around here because they win. And one of the things that when he took over Quenville, he lost, his team's lost like 14 to 17 games. When he had his own training camp, his team lost, I think nine of the first 12 games. He never got a team prepared to start. His team was prepared to start. Now, it might have been just Jonathan Tave saying, hey, guys, follow me. But whatever, he didn't get in the way. And I thought, I thought he showed progress as the series went on in showing faith in his fourth line that was repaid. I mean, it was a, a high, there were high um, events line but I thought in rolling four lines, he got the most out of his team. What did you did you see progress in Jeremy Colleton's coaching, and if so, where? I, I think that we can agree that there were still probably decisions that Colleton made that have kind of uh, made us scratch our heads a little bit, whether it's the continued uh, insertion of Alex Nylander into the lineup or what have you. But there were a lot of things that he did right in the series, and I do think he deserves praise for. I think that the Blackhawks' adjustments that they were able to make on the power play, especially in game one of the series and then in game four, are definitely uh, – noteworthy for him and he still hasn't quite gotten that formula right it's something that he's obviously continuing to work on but then as the series went on I felt like his execution of like making sure that he got specific matchups, whether it was sending out David Camp or Jonathan Taves against Connor McDavid, whether it was the penalty-killing strategy that the Blackhawks used, all of those things did tend to get a little bit better in the series, and I want to really hammer home the point about that penalty kill. In the first game, the Blackhawks looked completely outmatched against Edmonton's power play. They went one for four in that game. Edmonton was just scoring at will on the man advantage, and then as the series went on, that penalty kill really started to kind of dial in and really uh, 
start to stop the Oilers, the penalty kill, I think, stopped 11 of the last 13 power plays that Edmonton had. And I do think the share, a share of the credit for the success of that penalty killing unit does have to go to Jeremy Colleton. And finally, the, the other thing that I really liked about what his uh, strategy and what the scheme was in the last couple of games of that series was just how active the defense was. And I know that Colleton has emphasized that at times in the past with guys like Adam Boquist and Eric Gustafson, but I really felt that guys like Slater Cuckoo and Duncan Keith and Olimata all were getting involved in getting shots on that and really causing a lot of issues for the Edmonton defense. And I do have to give credit to Colleton for kind of identifying that as a potential issue and then going out and exploiting it. Hey, James, before the start of the third period, the announcers were saying that they're concerned because they feel the Hawks are passing up an opportunity for shots on goal. So they didn't have a lot of them in the third period, but is that something that can be just easily preached if they have any practice preparation, or is it a conscious effort to, you know, to take some shots that maybe you're not in the best position, but it's still a shot on goal? Uh, I think the key is just to try to keep the opponent as off balance as possible. And I think that when the Blackhawks kind of get into that mode, and you saw this on the power play, especially in games two and three, when they're looking for the perfect shot instead of trying to take a shot with traffic in front of the nets or with the Oilers' defense scrambling, I think that that's something the Blackhawks can definitely kind of look to build on. They do need to be more aggressive with their uh, shot-taking, honestly. I know that a lot of times hockey fans, especially on social media, kind of deride those who will yell shoots from the 300 level of the United Center. <laughs> At the same time, we saw the results of that in game three, Matthew Highmore and Jonathan Taves both scored on deflected goals. In game four, you once again had Highmore scoring on a deflected goal. Connor Murphy scored on a goal with a bunch of traffic in front of the net. You have to take advantage of those situations. And the whole key with shooting is, no, you don't want to give the goalie a wide open view of what's coming and then just kind of go from there but if you can get traffic to the front of the net like the Blackhawks can and they can with guys like Jonathan Taves and Kirby Doc and Dominic Kubelik it's never a bad idea to put the puck on net in those situations and they do need to stop passing up uh, some of their scoring opportunities one of the guys who definitely falls into that category is Kirby Doc he passed up several scoring opportunities in the series kind of was the only blemish on his record honestly in the four games I just think that the Blackhawks have seen that that shoot first mentality can work because you can either get those deflections or you can get really good rebounds and we saw that in game four and they should continue to do that moving forward our guest is james Naveau, nbc5 chicago a, a co-host with jay zawoski on madhouse podcast you know it's not just the 300 level yelling shoot because with no fans in the building, it's players on the bench yelling it too so it's not just leave the fans alone they were right they knew they should have shot. And one of the problems was Duncan Keith couldn't always get the shot through and understandably mm-hmm. was reluctant. And Brent Seabrook, when he would be the other on the other point, he couldn't always get a shot through. And if Seabrook's shot hit somebody, you were looking at a potential breakaway. It, could have been, it was going to be a shot on goal the other way. So that led to a lot of static power plays. And now they're just – they found ways to have confidence – to get the shots through, and the big target in front, Kirby Doc, is a bigger target than he was when the season was suspended. He looks like the rookie who comes back, as football coaches famously say, the biggest improvement is from freshman to sophomore year. 
that's what he looks like. He looks like the guy who would have shown up for the next training camp, bigger, stronger, and ready to be the number two center and learn from Jonathan Taves. Only he gets a huge advantage by doing it in the playoffs. I th- this is mm-hmm. this is phenomenal. Even if the Hawks don't have a shot at Alex Lafreniere, they their number three draft choice is going to play like like what, a top of the draft pick, and he's looking like it now. Well, and I mean, there was rightfully some skepticism when the Blackhawks took him just because of who they passed up. I know that Bowen Byram was at the top of the wish list for a lot of Blackhawks fans going into last year's draft. But before they made the selection, during some of the uh, podcasts we had done, Jay and I leading up to the draft, I had mentioned that Kirby Doc does a lot of little things well that could potentially make him an effective top six center, whether it's winning puck battles along the boards because he's got the physicality and the size to do it, whether he's got a shot in front of the net in a very tight space. It seemed like he has very quick wrists and is able to really get a lot of shots on net from that area or even just parking himself in front of the net and creating issues for goaltenders. All of those things really stood out when you watched his junior tape. And then he kind of had an abbreviated training camp because he ended up getting hurt in the Traverse City tournament last fall and really kind of struggled when he came into the NHL because he was still trying to play catch-up because of the limited training camp. But as the season went on and February and March, I felt like the confidence that he had in his own game was beginning to grow. He was starting to show some real signs of life. And then when the coronavirus pandemic kind of shut everything down, like you said, Steve, he went into the gym, he started lifting weights a little bit, putting some bulk on that frame like every single Blackhawks fan has kind of been hoping that he would do. And he's come out in these playoffs, and he has just played with a confidence that is well beyond his years. And even though Dylan Strom has really struggled in this postseason, and he was obviously looked at to be probably your number two center going into a series like this. Kirby Doc has definitely taken over that role, and Jeremy Colleton is credit to him also for this, is trusting Doc in all sorts of situations, not just at even strength. He's also trusting him on the power play and the penalty kill. It is a remarkable transformation for such a young player, and it should give Blackhawks fans a lot of hope for the future. Hey, James, I have a question for you. Cop the two opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, when you look at that redirect goal and you think about what the goalie is paying attention to and all of a sudden you see the stick come out and redirects the puck into the net, is that something that the defenders have to get more bodies to keep the offensive player out of that, that area that can have such a significant role? Or... Is it something that, you know, is it still the goalie's obligation at that point? It's almost, I think it's one of the most amazing things in sports to watch a redirected goal. Well, I think for some goaltenders, it's probably more a matter of preference. Like some goaltenders probably are okay if their teammates are trying to block shots in front of the net, while other goaltenders would kind of prefer that you try to clear that traffic out so they can get as good of a view of the puck as possible. And I think that one of the things the Blackhawks kind of made an adjustment on in game four of the series is that they were really static in games two and three. Their forwards were not moving around enough. The Oilers were kind of able to collapse into the middle of the ice and block a lot of shots that the Blackhawks were putting towards the net, especially in game two of the series. But then in game four, I felt like the Blackhawks did a really good job of kind of getting that movement going again. And that really not only kind of discombobulates the defense and prevents them from blocking those shots, but it also gives your players this opportunity as they're kind of skating through excuse me, the middle of the ice 
to deflect the puck in. And that, that to me, Tom, is one of my favorite things to see is a player kind of doing a flyby, a shot starts coming in from the point, and he's able to just bat it down with his stick. That is almost impossible for a goalie to adjust to, especially when it's in close. And the Blackhawks really executed that to perfection on multiple occasions. To be frank with you, I did not envy Miko Koskinen having to deal with all of the traffic the Blackhawks are putting in front of him in game four. I thought they did a great job of eluding the Edmonton defense and creating some opportunities in that space. Talking with James Naveau of the Madhouse podcast with Jay Zawoski. And, uh, and last week we talked with Jay, it was we sort of hit upon the idea that it was a nothing-to-lose mentality from the Hawks going in. They, they, the NHL jury-rigged the whole thing so that they could get the Canadians in and the Hawks in. And now the teams that rank 22nd, 23rd, and 24th in points percentage have all won their play-in series. The Coyotes, the Hawks, and the Canadians, in that order, are now moving into the playoffs. And for the Hawks, veterans, it's a chance for them to look to recapture whatever they might recapture. But for the kids, it's a great opportunity to gain experience in with with really nothing to lose because it's it's kind of found money at whatever the cost of the the number one draft pick might be. I think this this overall is a good thing for the Blackhawks. I agree with your with your your web poll. It might as well. It gives us something to root for. But now moving <laughs> on to real teams, not just a two-man team in Edmonton. When you're talking Vegas with incredible depth in Colorado that you know stole the Blackhawks idea and just play that want to play the game so fast nobody can keep up. What are the what will the Blackhawks face against one or of those two teams? Well, I think the thing that like is going to kind of differentiate Colorado from Edmonton is simply the depth that they have. Like, yeah, they do have that high end scoring talent with guys like Nathan McKinnon and Kale McCarr, but you go down their lineup and it's not like Edmonton where you're kind of like scrapping for depth, depth, excuse me, at the bottom of their uh, lineup. You have guys like Gabriel and You've got Andre Burakovsky, Nazem Kadri, Miko Rantanen. These guys just have a preposterously deep lineup and it is really hard. You can't just isolate like the McKinnon line and say, okay, that's the one that we're going to stop. The Blackhawks are going to have to do a good job overall of defending the Avalanche if they were going to want to stop them in this series. And we saw during the regular season, the Blackhawks did struggle at that. They gave up almost five goals a game to the Avalanche. They only played four times. And the Avalanche just seemingly were scoring at will on them. That's where I think the emergence of guys like Ryan Carpenter and David Camp is going to be key is because Jonathan Taves isn't just going to be able to be deployed against the number one line and expect to stop them. It's going to have to be a collective defensive effort from the forwards, and obviously the defensemen are going to have to step up in a big way. With Vegas, it's kind of a similar thing. They don't really have a Connor McDavid or a Leon Dreisaitl on that team, but when you look at guys like Max Pacioretty, you look at a Mark Stone, you look at a William Carlson, Shea Theodore even, they are, once again, just like the depth that Vegas has has always kind of been their hallmark, especially the first year that they were in the league that they went to the Stanley Cup final, and that's obviously going to set them apart from a team like Edmonton who just seems to ride their two big horses and that's it. Of course, I know Blackhawk fans are probably going to want to face Vegas because it means an opportunity to potentially face Robin Leonard in the postseason. And I know that that has to be something that Hawks fans would look forward to just to kind of seeing how that would play out. 
But when you look at the goaltending for both of these teams, too, it's not like it gets any easier. This isn't a Mike Smith situation where you're going to hope that he makes some dumb mistake and it kind of frees you up to do something like the Hawks got in game one. All four of the goaltenders that play for these two teams are really talented, and the Blackhawks just all they have to do is look up and down those lineups and go, man, that is going to be a really stressful challenge. And I know a lot of people have been going back and forth on which one would be better for the Blackhawks to play, and frankly, it's not like either of them are particularly ideal options. Hey, James, I, I have one quick question for you. When I went to Notre Dame, Digger Phelps used to run this four-corner offense that used to bore the opponent if they were a high-scoring opponent. So I watched last night, and at the end of the game, they get into this four-corner uh, pass of just trying to maintain possession of the huck, the puck. Is that Do they have a line specifically for that, or are you doing it with the group of guys that are on the ice? I would think that the Blackhawks could probably put together a line that could execute a strategy like that, but I just think that their game is much more effective when it's going in a north-south orientation. I feel like the Blackhawks take advantage of chaos on the defensive side of things, and that's why you see guys like Dominic Kubelik repeatedly cutting to the net because he's trying to – you know, kind of scramble up the defense a little bit there. I don't think the Blackhawks are really the kind of team to, I guess, proverbially take the air out of the puck, to borrow a phrase from uh, basketball (laughs) or football. I just, I think that the Blackhawks are a lot better off when they're able to kind of get the defense uh, kind of sprinting around in a bunch of different directions. And I just, I don't know if they really, if that's really the strategy to kind of take out the avalanche. I just think that the best way to do that is just to try to score as many goals as you can and hope that your defense and your goaltending can carry you through because, I mean, that's what got them here, and I think that's going to be the thing that could get them through if they could pull off the huge upset. 23rd best team in the in the play-in round gets to sit at home and watch today's games to figure out who it's going to play. That's, that's just great. James, thanks for joining <laughs> us. We appreciate it. Made us all smarter. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Appreciate it. James Navo of the Madhouse Podcast, uh, NBC5 Chicago Sports, and, and he and Jay do a terrific job, and you heard why. There's just terrific insight there. Speaking of insight, there's Mr. Thayer over there. Mr. Thayer, we can't go a football show. We can't go a show having you on without talking about quarterbacks if we're talking about Bears. And there are many things to discuss, quarterbacks and offensive coaches and things like that. So we will do that. After this break, I'm Steve Rosenblum. He's Tom Thayer. It's Saturday Suckage, Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
from the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all in one e commerce platform to their in person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. Bears. Mark Grody, he'll be with us in about an hour. Mark Grody's usually on this show, but he's not on this show. But he will be on this show at 1.20 to talk Bears with Tom Thayer, who is on this show. Tom Thayer is sitting in for Mark Grody. Mark Grody will be on this radio station at 3 o'clock. And the, the Bears are the Bears. And Tom Thayer is here on Saturday Suckage. I'm working overtime to try to keep the good name of Saturday <laughs> Suckage alive. Tom is defying me by being so eloquent and complete and stylish in his Bears answers. And we cannot go a Bears show without discussing, oh, by the way, before we discuss quarterbacks, we have plenty of time to bang on them, but the the moms that come up here, we we learned today, Tom, you may not know, on Saturday Suckage, moms play a very important role on this show. They are, they are active personalities in terms of the, the way they manifest themselves. Mama Thayer just became a part of this show. She became a part of the fabric with you telling us the story because of the, my love for Mama Thayer's chicken noodle soup. And the use of pepper is, is so important in that. And she was on her on her hospice bed. And she's for those of you who are not who joined us late, Tom was telling the story about how Mama Thayer was telling Tom how to pick out a good chicken for chicken noodle soup. And that joins a long list of moms on this show, Jean Grody. Mark's mom would would often dress Mark, tell Mark what he needs, make sure he had a winter coat for those games in Minnesota that might have been outdoors or that bad that in Green Bay, all that bad weather stuff. And our producer, Trash Panda, Alice, who's married to Shooter, would have updates on the shooter shooting out of his out of his window at Trash Pandas. So we think Alice does Alice have an update? Trash Panda, by the way. Oh well, not really. Uh, they're they're doing some redesigning of the porch this week, this weekend. It sounds like, but that's that's it. There's no, the animals don't seem to be a nuisance. That or she's not telling me about them. So maybe she's listening and she'll text me. We'll find out. But as far as I know, there's not really an update other than they're getting rid of the porch swing, which I'm upset about because I, when I visit, I like to sit out there in the mornings and drink my coffee. It's very peaceful out there. It's very quiet. Maybe you get a breeze going, but there's no city noise. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And so now I'm just going to have to, I don't know, I'm find something else to sit on. 
Why are they getting rid of the porch swing? Well, they never use it. So I mean, it makes sense if they don't use it. I visit, you know, I don't visit as often as I probably should. I haven't visited at all since the pandemic's been going on. So, you know, I guess it's not worth it to them to keep it around for me to use three times a year. Well, what does it cost them to have it there? It's not like they're renting a It doesn't a cost them anything. Swing. It doesn't cost them anything. I don't know why they're getting rid of it. So a shooter I, can just sit on it and swing and fire his gun and hit whatever he hits. See, I, exactly. They can use it for all sorts of things. So I guess my dad's going to chop it up, probably use, probably use some of that wood for various firewoods. And, <laughs> and yeah, there we go. So, Tom, I want to thank you for adding Mama Thayer to our list of moms as they become personalities on this show. That's a very well, look, important can I, part can... of this show. Can I add one more story about my mom? Because I think the oh, the role you can that, add all the all the stories you want, Tom. We're here for it. This is the mom show. I think the role that female support plays in the life of athletes is the most important element of a guy or a, or a young lady, young man continuing to play. And so. When I was a young kid and the Pop Warner football program started in Joliet, there was a guy named Rocky Carnegie, which is the perfect name to start a young football program. And he came over and said, I know you have two sons. I would like for them to come out and try the Pop Warner program. My brother Rick was great immediately, and he loved it, but he was a running back. So now I'm going to practice, and I'm a young offensive lineman, which is no fun. You don't do anything fun if you're a young offensive lineman. (laughs) So my first two years of going to Pop Warner practice, I used to cry every day, and I used to almost hide so hopefully my mom wouldn't find me. But because of her perseverance, every single day she drove me to practice to Pershing grade school, and I'd be crying the whole way. And then she'd stop the car, she'd push me out of the car, and she goes, you'll stop crying when you see your friends. You'll stop crying. So it was almost like she knew it. So I would put my helmet on, and I would walk from the sidewalk to the practice field. I would walk up and see my friends, and then... I would I would stop the crying and and start the football prep. So if it just wasn't for her perseverance, the resiliency, her not letting my tears turn her around, I would have never I would have probably never played football. But because of her and not letting me, you know, have the tears dictate what I was going to do at that young age, she was the deciding factor, and she's the reason why that I was a I I really you know, made it to that next level. I love that story. Were you, a, were you, a, did you cry with a lip on or were you, what kind of, were you a blubbering crier? What kind of crier were you, Tom? Uh, you know, I was a pouty fake tears trying to, you know, every reason in the book of, you know, every same thing that every day she woke me up from school for school. Oh, I got a headache or oh, I'm sick today. No, you're not. Take an aspirin and go to school. And it's a, it was the same thing with football. You know, you go to you go to school, you come home for about a half hour and then you start wrapping it up to get ready to go to football practice. And um, like I said, I whined every day about it, but every single day she brought me in, told me to get out of the car, and I'd stop crying when I see my friends, and it worked. <laughs> oh, my, I love that. So what would Ferris Thayer's day off have been like if it was Ferris, Ferris Thayer? 
Oh, it, you know what? I was born in 1961, and I was a, a sitcom TV-watching baby. And if you go back and you want to talk about every show from Barnaby Jones to Cannon to, to yeah. Mannix all the way to, you know, every car, a Hanna-Barbera cartoon to Ray Rayner, Frazier Thomas, Family Classics, all of them. Um, I was uh, the youngest of the kids at that point, and so I was a lazy kid that sat in front of the TV, and my mom and dad weren't having it. No, they were going to take you to football practice and tell you to stop crying, and you see all your friends, <laughs> and you get to hug them and all, all of that. So, you know, we had a discussion when Grody was on, because Grody does uh, Let Me Put a List Together podcast, and one of the ideas was coolest private investigator, your PI, because my guy is Jim Rockford. I love Jim Garner. So Jim Rockford, and they, they, they have it noted at Paradise Cove up in Malibu in California that that was where they filmed it. That was the, the place where Jim Rockford lived. So of all the TV detectives, who was your favorite? Who was, who was your, your guy, your hero? Uh, you know, there's nothing better than a Sunday night Mission Impossible episode, but it kind of meant that school was the next day, and it, that kind of took the thrill away from it. But Mission Impossible, I love when they lit that wick and started the episode. But, you know, hey, I was everything from Get Smart for the the clueless guys or although you know adam 12 or every one of those shows that i mentioned you know i i could probably sit there and watch an episode and within five minutes tell you what it's about all right well the critical question of somebody sort of your age was marcia brady or Lori partridge i'd probably go with the brady okay i'm with you on that I'm yeah. with you on that. Okay, so we have we have agreement here, and we love Mama Thayer for just. <laughs> I'm gonna stop stop the car, and you're gonna stop crying. You'll see your friends, and you'll enjoy it, and every day, and you never learned. Well, I guess you learned, um, but we're glad for the Mama Thayer story. Thanks for sharing. We are the Mom Show. We have great stuff from moms here. We are going to get great stuff from Maddie Lee of NBC Sports Chicago. She covers the Cubs. They're not playing. We'll talk about why they're not playing and what's going to happen next when they are playing. Saturday suckage, Thayer's in for Grody, but Grody will be here within the next hour. That's just the way Saturday suckage works. Chicago Sports Radio, 670 The Score. Everybody was good yesterday. I think everybody was like, okay, we'll just take it as a... Players are, you know, if I go back to my playing days, like no matter what you kind of welcome an off day you know in the middle of a of a long stretch and so the first off day is always nice nice relaxing you know they when you when you when you're getting ready for a game and uh, somebody tells you it's canceled it's really easy to shut off that that mental grind and, and that physical of where you might need to get your body ready and um you know talking through some things and how hard these guys have been playing kind of giving the position players an extra day to day That there is your 2020 National League Manager of the Year, or Manager of Two Weeks. He's David Ross. He's talking about the Cubs playing, not playing, weekend in St. Louis, weekend canceled. It's a little crazy. Uh, Everybody's, I don't know, let's see if we can, see if we can get the story straight and figure out where this goes now with the Cardinals having played like five games we're going to the Alpamonte Ford hotline Alpamonte Ford in Melrose Park joining us now from NBC Sports Chicago and 
NBC Sports Chicago is Maddie Lee. Maddie, welcome to Saturday Suckage. Do you really, did you know what you signed up for when you agreed to come on this show? Uh, no, I went in completely blindly, so I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah, we're, we're excited to see too. So the Cubs and baseball, the Cubs were supposed to play a series in St. Louis. It's not being played. Nobody knows when that will be played. Is that right? No one knows when the Cardinals will ever play again. And so what is this? Set the situation as you know it. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary there. Uh, the Cubs now, you know, they went into the weekend thinking, hey, we're going to have three games in St. Louis. Now they had, obviously, yesterday off. They traveled back to Chicago. Today they're doing a light day for pitchers and for position players. It is optional. Tomorrow they have a sim game. The next day, as David Ross said, they're doing something fun, some sort of competition. We don't know what that looks like yet, but there's a lot still up in the air. Like you said, when the Cubs will make up these games, who's pitching on Tuesday in Cleveland, it's a very odd situation and uh, very 2020. You know, Maddie, there's so much unique uh, events that can happen in a season like this. But, uh, you know, a guy like John Lester specifically, you kind of get him into a rhythm. You get his body moving, and then he, you know, feels confident from one start to the next. How do you keep that in him? Because you don't want, you don't want to um, slow him down that much to get ready for his next start. You kind of want to keep him into that rhythm, what you were able to achieve to this point. Sure. I, I think it helps that he's a veteran for sure. You know, he's been through not this specifically before, but, you know, had to had to adjust to different scheduling things, disrupting a rhythm, whether it's a rain out or what, whatever it may be. And David Ross pointed out like, hey, they just went through this crazy three months off and handled that really well. So for the pitchers, at least. You know, this is not ideal, but at least it's not as bad as having three months off and then three weeks to ramp back up. Talking with Maddie Lee of NBC Sports Chicago. She writes about the Cubs, and she's talking here on The Score with me and Tom Thayer. So the the Cardinals have lost a bunch of games, and they would have to make up 55 games in 49 days, which is a lot of doubleheaders, probably requires some rule changes, and baseball's tried to be as nimble as possible, and I don't know the Cubs players have said this on any Zoom, but I would imagine they have additional reason to hate the Cardinals and the Cardinal way for infecting baseball and getting in the way of the Cubs run. The Cubs seem to be in a wonderful situation, a cocoon of we'll play baseball, we'll be disciplined, and they'll be, war- be rewarded with that discipline, with in that discipline, with victories. That seemed to be the way things were were working for this team. They seemed to find joy in winning games, and it was all worth it because that's what they do. I don't know if any of the players have spoken about that, but that's a feeling I got from way outside. Yeah, we definitely heard some guys mention, like, we're on such a good roll right now. You don't want that to get disrupted. John Lester honestly called this earlier in the week. He was like, this is just my opinion, but I don't think that we're going to play the Cardinals this weekend. So, honestly, MLB should have just gone with John Lester's gut and scheduled them to play someone else this weekend so that they wouldn't have to deal with, you know, stopping and restarting. They could have just kept going on this roll. But, yeah, other than, you know, that 
13-2 to loss the other night. The Cubs have looked really solid even in their losses. You know, we can talk about the bullpen. That's another discussion. But great start to the season. I think there is probably some disappointment that they couldn't just keep on carrying that momentum through the weekend. And, you know, momentum in a weird season like this can play a big role because you only have 60 games. And so if you get on a streak, that that could decide the season for you. So definitely some disappointment there. But, you know, it's this was bound to happen at some point, especially once you saw – these, this outbreak come to the central division, you knew that it was going to affect everyone's schedules in some way. So Cubs were not blindsided by this by any means. And at least they're in a much better position to make up a handful of games. You know, you hope that there aren't more down the line, but so far just a few games, you know, one from the rainout and then three from this weekend, as opposed to the Cardinals who like you said, we don't even know when they're going to play next. They already, if they can start, you know, immediately starting next week, are looking at a lot of games in very few days. Real tough situation, even if they can get this virus under control super quickly. Hey, Maddie, when we came back to this section, uh, this segment, David Ross was talking about it. Yeah, an unexpected day off during the course of a season is welcomed by players. But now it's not a day off, it's almost a week off. You have a first-time manager. What type, at, well, who, Do they have an advisor between David Ross and Tommy Hadovy who could even explain how to go about the next week since we don't have anybody who's ever lived through this type of baseball through the most experienced managers to even the young guys like David Ross? Right. I think something that Tommy Hadovy said even before they started playing rings really true because we kept talking about like, Hey, first time manager, really tough situation. How's he handling it? And Tommy Hosby was like, well, even the most experienced managers at this point don't have a playbook for something like the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, it doesn't even matter that he doesn't have this type of experience. He is able to use the experience he has as a player as much as well as anyone who has you know, been managing for a decade or whatever. So, I mean, they're constantly talking, obviously, as they're trying to figure out what to do with the rotation. That's going to be a lot of conversations between David Ross and Tommy Hadovy as they're trying to figure out the best ways to attack this pandemic. They do have that compliance officer, Vijay, who also does their traveling and just a ton of things. He's their compliance officer, so that's in his court, so to speak. So there's a lot of conversations going on between David Ross and his coaching staff and everything. But, yeah, there's no no perfect playbook in order to handle this, but David Ross has handled it as well as you could ever imagine. Talking for a first-time manager. Talking Cubs on the score with Maddie Lee of NBC Sports Chicago. Steve Rosenblum, Tom Thayer with you. One of the storylines was this season, since we're talking about David Ross, was how would David Ross manage his friends, people he won a championship with? There's a difference between calling out a teammate when you're, in, when you're a player in that clubhouse 
and calling out a player when you're a manager and you're in a different room and a different office and a different strata. And on the one hand, we saw he wasn't going to settle for any crap from Craig Kimbrell. You suck it out. I'm bringing in somebody who can get out, which, and he was a guy who went down there and told Theo, yeah, Kimbrell's got it. Sign him. So this is a guy with a vested interest and he knows Kimbrell can't get people out. So full marks for that. Now the question about Javi not running out a ball he should have run out and David Ross saying it wouldn't say anything. Do you believe David Ross didn't say anything? And what does that say if, if he really didn't? Because that was a moment that needed to be noted. Or is that David Ross showing how he manages friends by protecting them publicly and maybe taking a piece of paint off their backside privately? You know, I do believe that he didn't say anything. I think that's one of those moments where, and David Ross addressed it after the game, where, like you said, publicly he talked about, hey, Javi's always working hard. This is not, it's not like we, you see him dogging it every day. I think he just thought it was a foul ball. I didn't say anything was what he said over the Zoom session. And I do believe that. I think it's a situation where, Javi knows that that was a mistake. You know, he, when you look back at the replay, he really barely got a piece of it. That feels like a foul ball to a, you know, seasoned player, some guy who's been doing this his whole life. And then between the wind, I'm not making excuses. Obviously you've got to run that out, but I think what we hear from a lot of players is that, the great thing about David Ross that has translated from his playing days to his managing days really well is that he will shoot you straight. He's not going to sugarcoat things, and that goes for guys that he's known and played with and for the new guys. He's going to shoot you straight, and the guys really appreciate that because, you know, I think a lot of uh, ball players are – natural BS detectors, right? But they know that he's played this game. He understands it from a player's perspective, and they really respect what he says. And a situation like Javi not running out that ball, yeah, not a good look. But David Ross doesn't have to say anything in that moment for Javi to know, like, oh, man, I messed up there. And so I think that's where David Ross is is balancing that. Like, if it did become a consistent problem – I think you'd expect him to say anything, to say something, but it was one moment where a guy knows that he's messed up. So does it actually do anything to, you know, chew him out? Um, I'm not convinced that it is, and that it would. And obviously, David Ross did not think so. Uh, Maddie. When you look at the pitching staff here, there's a tremendous amount of respect for John Lester. That's obvious. There's huge hope still for you, Darvish, considering the way he finished up the season last year. But how fortunate are the Cubs to have a guy like Kyle Hendricks that can fill a void, can throw a lot of pitches, can really go out there and perform well, keep the bullpen off the out of the game. But really, if they need to reconstruct the way the – the, the staff is going to go about its business after this layoff. How fortunate are they to have a guy like Kyle? Yeah, it's hugely fortunate. I think what you said about the bullpen just then is absolutely one of the biggest things. You saw him throw the complete game to start off the season. Amazing. And with a bullpen that 
at best you could say is unproven. At worst, you can say has proven that they are not reliable. Granted, we've seen a couple good bullpen performances recently. I don't want to take that away from them, but man, <laughs> anytime that there's you know just a couple run lead, you are not sure at all how that game is going to go. So definitely huge. And Kyle Hendricks is a guy who has been so consistent for this ball club over the last five years. It, you know, his first few starts, he went from being lights out to having some struggles and then working through some struggles really well in his most recent start. And he credited a lot of that to his catcher, um, which I appreciate as a former catcher, but just having Wilson Contreras really get on him and absolutely uh, continue to get better throughout that start. So, He's definitely a guy who just adds consistency. We all know about his poise on the mound and his inability to really get thrown off mentally. So that's huge in this rotation, especially with you know two guys moving up in the rotation that we didn't expect to, you know, with Chatwood be so high in the rotation because of the injury to Quintana and then obviously John Lester's more conservative approach to the offseason that had him bumped back to the number four starter. And then Mills, who ends up being your fifth starter due to that injury. Other than Chatwood's start the other night, those two have been big surprises uh, and have given them two really good starts, but a piece. Uh, But Hendricks is absolutely a really – consistent guy and consistency is key in this kind of season. Maddie, thank you. Thank you for the knowledge. Thank you for stopping by and joining us on the maiden voyage of your, your visit through Saturday suckage. Wasn't too bad. And I hope you can, <laughs> hope you can clear off the, whatever kind of suckage stuck to you. It should be, should come off with basic uh, bar soap. Thanks again. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Thanks Maddie. All right. Maddie Lee of NBC Sports Chicago, Todd Cubs. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Tom, we're going to do, even though Grody's not here, we're going to be doing What Are You Doing, Wagner? And it's a segment where we started, well, I'll explain it later. And don't you trouble your pretty little head over it. You just sit back and enjoy this, okay? Yeah. Very well. Okay. All right. He's Tom there. I'm Steve Rosenblum. Saturday Suck at Chicago Sports Radio 670, The Score. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.